Father, you speak to us in so many different ways. And Holy Spirit, we just thank you that we can hear you. We can hear the voice of the Father. That wind in the sails that blows and brings your joy and your life to us. And leads us and guides us and directs us to where you want to go. And how you speak into our lives. And I just pray this morning that as I bring this word, that you would speak into each one of us what we need to hear. And it can be different for everyone here and everyone who's watching online, but it'll be your word for them for today and to take them forward into the future. So I just pray, Father, that you'd use me. Holy Spirit, I'm an instrument in your hands. Use me as you will. Thank you. Amen. 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 So this morning, I'm continuing the series on transformation. And I have to acknowledge a pastor from the USA, Dennis Lee. I don't know who he is, I've never met him. But um, he put the main structure of this message together. It was a message that I'd read online, and I just felt this was something that we needed to hear as well. And it fitted in with what God is doing with us here, talking about transformation. And so today, I'm looking at transformed for significance. All right, so... A little story to start with. After three generations of living in the back country of the deep south of the USA with no contact to the outside world, a father decided it was about time they saw what had become of the world. They finally came to a big city where they saw buildings so tall that they quickly became intimidated. Leaving his wife and daughter at the outskirts of the city, he and his son made their way into one of these giant buildings. They walked into the lobby and saw things that they'd never seen before. But with everything they saw, there was one thing that held the father's attention. There were two large metal doors with lights on the side and above. Um, And soon, an elderly lady went up to these doors, pushed the buttons at the side. The doors opened, and she got in, and then the doors closed. The lights above the doors started to light up, one, two, three, and higher it went. After it stopped, the lights started flashing again, in the opposite direction. Afterwards, the doors opened and a beautiful young lady stepped out. Flabbergasted, the father turned to his son and said, wait right here, I'm going to get your mother and run her through that thing. (laughs) While humorous, and something that will get me into trouble, uh, more trouble than I think is worth, unfortunately the reality is that we live in a situation where so many people that follow Christ think, life is like that. That is, we walk in and walk out as whole and new, improved persons when we come to Christ. That we step into something, when we step into Christ, we are suddenly transformed and come out totally new. People want instant Christianity, where they just look like Jesus after accepting Him as their Lord and Savior. Instant. And the sad reality, however, is that they get a rude awakening when they discover that holiness and Christ-likeness isn't instant. The reason most people think this way is because of the society that we live in today. It produces a false mentality. That is, everything is instant. We live in an instant society. We're a people that are always on the go, and if something doesn't come quickly enough for us, we move on. Amazon deliveries need to be next day. Instant coffee, we don't want to wait to brew it, although brewed coffee is far better, and I do wait to do it, so, yeah. We are people that are always on the go. 
Why sit down for a meal when you can drive through and collect it? Why get out of the car when you can eat it on the go? And even when we do sit down for a meal, oftentimes it's instant, microwavable. Pop it in, push the buttons, it comes out ready for us to eat. And I know there's guys that are fighting against these instant meals, and it's wonderful. Cook proper vegetables. It's far better for you. And it's unfortunate this instant microwave mentality has done a lot of damage. You see, maturity doesn't come in a box. There's no such thing as completion in a can. Rather, maturity is a process, and it takes both time and energy. Maturity involves transformation, and transformation involves a struggle. Consider the butterfly. We have pictures of it there. It doesn't start out as a butterfly. It starts out as a caterpillar. And then it weaves itself into a cocoon, and then it fights and struggles to get out. Now, if you help in the process trying to make it easy for the butterfly, it actually stunts the butterfly, and it comes out crippled, unable to fly. The butterfly has to squeeze its way through that opening that it makes to force out the, the, the fluids that are within it to get out into the wings. And then it has to sit and wait for those wings to dry out before it can fly off. If you cut it open and just crawls out, it will never be able to fly. And that's what's been happening in this world. People want the easy way rather than working hard for it. Many in our instant uh, everything world don't like waiting for things. Working is a dirty word, and it seems heretical. It's one of the reasons I believe that gambling is such a big thing in this country. Go into any high street uh, in any town, and you'll see at least one betting shop. People will gamble in order to hit the big jackpot so that they're set for life. They don't have to work again. I've done quite a lot of work in one of the casinos in central London with my other job at Gallo Glass. And there are people there 24-7 at the tables, at the machines, trying to make the the, the big one, hit the big one, and trying to make it so they don't have to work again. The punters only see the opulence of where they go and gamble. Where they are, it's all beautiful and glitzy and wonderful. But that's just a facade. Get past the glitzy bit, the lights and the opulence, and you find the parts that are not so beautiful and inviting. Where we load in and load out of the stuff that we take into the casino, it's the back rooms. You go through all the back corridors that don't look fancy. They're not well painted. They don't look as glitzy as the front part is. And nobody sees that apart from the workers. So it's a facade. And what is a facade? It's a superficial appearance or an illusion of something that is not. Now, one of the other things, and we've been doing a lot of it lately with Gallo Glass, the work that I've been doing, is seeing the facades at the movie studios. Go into a movie studio, and all you see is facades all the time. And one of the best examples I've seen was a number of years ago, I was working down at Tilbury Fort, right at the mouth of the Thames. And it's a wonderful old fort. And um, it was we, when we drove in there and came into and we looked around, there was all the buildings that side, there were a whole bunch of buildings on the other side, and uh, okay, above the one building there were some lights, so obviously that's, they'd been using that building to work, uh, to film in, in the courtyard area. And then we went around the back of, that, of the one building, and it wasn't a building, it was just a front. There's a picture, let's see that first picture. That was the building that I saw. That's an amazing old building. But if you look at the second picture, 
that's what it's really like. That's the facade. And like, who knows? And that's when we watch movies, it's, most of it's a facade. What I've discovered is that we are not very different. Our spiritual lives can take on a facade. We don't want to take the time or effort necessary to follow and allow the changes that God wants to make in our lives. And so we give off the illusion of that we're something that we're not. But God is not impressed by our outside appearance. Rather, he's concerned with the inward. In choosing David over his brothers, the Lord said, For the Lord does not see, a man, uh, see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7b. God sees the inward man, not the costumes and facades that we put on. And his desire is to see us transformed through the inward working of the Holy Spirit to, and stop being changed by the surrounding world. We don't need to be influenced by the world. The Bible says in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is, what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Unfortunately, most Christians are not conformed. Most Christians are conformed rather than transformed. We conform to the world. Now, what do I mean by that? I'm glad you asked. Okay. To conform means to mold or form something based on something else. It's an outward change that takes place. Like the landscape in nature, the effects of wind, rain, and temperature change the landscape. For those of you old enough to remember, if you ever did know about it, the finger of God was a, a big rock feature in southwest Africa, as it was then in Namibia. And um, it was there for hundreds of years. But wind erosion eventually eroded the bottom of it, and the whole rock fell down. That's what happens to us. There's a change in the landscape due to what's happening around it. We as Christians are being changed in the same way. And that's because the world requires and demands conformity. But as Christians, we must stand firm and remain resolute in our convictions. There truly is no room for compromise. And so Paul is not only warning, but commanding Christians to stop this practice. He's basically saying, hey, stop masquerading in the costumes of the world if you say that you're a Christian. But as a Christian, I think we become conformed in other ways, not only to the world, but also to the illusion of what we think Christianity is. Therefore, a form of superficiality occurs, where instead of worldly costumes, we start putting on Christian costumes, and in our mannerisms, speeches, expressions, styles, and habits, we speak Christianese. And for somebody who's not a believer, we can say words that they have no understanding of, and they're not sure what we're talking about. It's what Paul describes will happen in the end times, where people will have the form of godliness, but deny where it all comes from. That is, from Jesus Christ. You see, the power of godliness doesn't come from outward expressions, but rather it comes from an inward change. It's what's called transformation. Biology calls it metamorphosis. As mentioned earlier, we see an example of this in the change in the life of a caterpillar. It forms a cocoon, and out of that cocoon comes a beautiful butterfly. 
That is, this is the change that Paul says must happen in the life of a believer. It's a radical change, a change from the inside out. As a new creation in Christ, the same power that transformed Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration is with us. It says in Matthew 17 and verse 2, He was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. They saw the glory of his divine essence. That which was his very being shone through his human body. As Jesus was indeed God in human flesh, and it says in John's Gospel that the Word of God, who is God, became flesh and dwelt among us. And it says that we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten Son of God. In other words, his divinity was seen through his humanity. Therefore, as a new creation in Christ and the ever-abiding presence of the Holy Spirit, the same transformative power resides within us as we shine forth the glory of Jesus Christ through these human bodies that God has given us. But just like that butterfly, it's not an easy task and it involves struggle. If you clip open the cocoon, as I said earlier, the butterfly will never fly. It's the butter without the fly. And the same goes for us. There are no shortcuts to holiness. No shortcuts to holiness. In other words, we should never let the illusion be a substitute for the substance. The key then to holiness is transparency and openness and honesty about our sins and shortcomings and a willingness to admit wrong and then a willingness to repent. That is to turn away from our sins and to turn towards God. That is what happened here a few Sundays ago. We had a certain young lady come to the front to confess to her Grace Vineyard family that, that she had gone off the rails and done things that she shouldn't have done. This person repented and received forgiveness and love from a Grace Vineyard family. But more importantly, she received it from her Heavenly Father who is working in her life through the Holy Spirit to keep her on track and transform her from within now, it's from the accounts of King David and King Saul that we see the supernatural life as compared to the superficial life. One of the prayers that was prayed for us in the leadership, as you're praying for us, mentions this. In 2 Samuel chapter 3 and verse 1, it says, Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, but David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. What we see is that Saul and his heritage and anointing was continually growing weaker, while David grew increasingly stronger. Both were anointed by God. Saul's anointing was not in question. We see this when he says that God turned Saul into another man in 1 Samuel 10 verse 6. We won't look at the verse. Even as he was running away from Saul, David affirmed this anointing, and when the opportunity came, David wouldn't raise his hand against Saul, whom he called God's anointed. Remember in the cave, where he was hiding in the cave near the opportunity, cut, cut off the corner of Saul's cloak, but he wouldn't touch Saul. Yet Saul, because of his disobedience to God, was rejected, even though he was anointed. It says that the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. And it's always something that I've struggled with, where he was so anointed, but yet the Spirit of God departed from him because he was disobedient. David was also anointed by God, in fact, he was chosen over his, his other brothers, those who would have had more claim to the throne than him. 
And so from our story of David and Saul, we see how we can be transformed into significance. We must know who we are. Saul lost, lost sight of who he was in God's eyes. He didn't see himself as chosen by God to make a difference. Rather, he saw himself as nothing. Am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel? Am my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak like this to me? 1 Samuel 9, 21, when Saul was chosen, he doubted. I've also seen this in Christians who don't truly know who they are in Christ. One person said, I'm nothing but puffed up dust. My response was that he had forgotten one thing. He had forgotten that he was molded by God from the dust of the earth, and it was the breath of God, the Holy Spirit, which Father God breathed into him, which puffed him up. I spoke a bit about, it, about the dry dust when I spoke about being molded and the, looking at the potter. It's the breath of God in us. He doesn't puff us up, but he gives us life. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus breathes upon us, like he did to his disciples after the resurrection, saying to them, receive the Holy Spirit. When this transformation occurs, not only are we significant because the Holy Spirit now resides in us, but we are significant because we are part of God's family. We are significant because we are part of God's family. Beloved, now we are children of God, and has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2. David knew who he was in the Lord. When Samuel anointed David, it says that from that day on, the Holy Spirit came powerfully upon him. This is something David knew and didn't want this anointing to ever leave, even when he blew it so badly with Bathsheba. David prayed, Do not cast, away, cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Psalm 51, verse 11. It's the psalm that he wrote after his adultery with Bathsheba. And so David as it is with all who come into the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, we need to know who we are in the Lord, that we are truly significant because, it, because not only does the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, reside within us, but we are also children of the Most High God. Children of the Most High God. We see David's understanding of this early on when he confronted Goliath. Which leads me to the second aspect of Saul and David's life. We must know our calling. We must know our calling. Saul never understood God's calling on his life. We see this when he literally tried to hide from it. When they were looking to anoint him as king, Saul was hiding amongst the baggage. I've said this before, but I'll say it again. God has a calling for each of our lives. Each one is different, but each one is important. But too often we fear it. We're afraid because we don't want anything to upset our little world. So we hide ourselves in the baggage of our past and stuff we think we need to do. What we need to understand is that God's calling is sure and He'll bring to completion the good work He began in us. He tells us that in Philippians 1.6 and make us complete in every good work that is to do His will. Moreover, whom he predestined, he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Romans chapter 8 and verse 30. Now David, on the other hand, never hid from his calling, but trusted in God 
and moved out in confidence and faith. We see this in the Goliath story. He told Goliath, you, to me with the, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord, Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. 1 Samuel chapter 17 and verse 45. What is interesting in this story when it comes to knowing our calling is when Saul tried to put his armor on David for the battle, David tried it on but refused it because it was the wrong size. It was made for Saul, not for him. God has called us to be exactly who we are, not someone else. And that's so important to remember. Don't ever compare yourself to anyone else. Comparison comes from the devil, not from God. God never calls you to compare yourself to someone else, apart from Jesus Christ, to look to him. We are never to put on someone else's armor or the calling God has given to them. Likewise, we are not to try and imitate what God is doing in someone else's life. Whom God calls, God equips to do what he has called only them to do. So instead of wearing Saul's armor, David meets Goliath with a slingshot and five stones. And through the Lord, David won the battle and the day. We don't need all the fancy bits when God calls us to do something. And we must know what it takes. We must know what it takes. When we know our calling, we must know what it takes. Saul failed to acknowledge his sin and repent. In his first battle, Saul failed to trust God. Seeing the people scatter before the Philistine army, Saul made an offering to God, that which was never his responsibility, and directly against God's word. When the prophet Samuel confronted him, Saul rationalized it away and blamed others. I saw the people leaving, so I had to do it. God also told, called Saul to destroy Amalek for its, te- uh, for its treachery. But Saul didn't follow God's instructions, sparing the king and the best of the live flock. Again, when confronted by Saul, Saul rationalized the decision and blamed others. We kept the, the livestock to offer sacrifice. As was prayed this morning earlier, obedience is better than sacrifice. That's where it comes from, that story of Saul. David, on the other hand, when confronted with his sin with Bathsheba, confessed and repented. He never passed it off to his temperament, upbringing, or whether or not he was a victim of society. David knew enough and confessed and asked God's forgiveness. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Again, Psalm 51 and verse 4. He then asked the Lord to wash and cleanse him from, from his sin and renew his, his heart and his spirit. In bringing this to a close, a last few comments. Saul had been anointed by God. He looked like a king, spoke like a king, wore kingly arm, and had the weapons to prove his status. But somewhere along the way, Saul decided the image was more important than the reality. Saul's life was a spiritual facade, that is a superficial appearance giving the illusion of what he wasn't. He wore a mask and a costume. He had the mannerisms, speech, expressions, styles, and habits. He had the form of godliness, but denied its power. Remember, the power of godliness doesn't come from outward expressions, but from an inward change. It doesn't conform to the situation. Rather, it is transformative. David had little to recommend him on the outside. He was more of a kid than a king. 
He didn't wear the armor of man, but his armor was from God. And even though he had some serious moral and judgmental issues, he never tried to be who he wasn't. He was real and honest and openly wept in repentance when he sinned against God. As Christians, we need to move from the superficial and into the supernatural. And the only way we can do this is to be completely transparent before both God and man. We need to stop wearing Christian costumes and masks and start putting on Christ instead. No longer are we to be conformed to this world or even to religion or religious traditions, but rather we are to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit residing in us. And then this transformation towards significance will happen. Got some questions for discussions, and uh, for those on, uh, online, we'll get them up for you shortly into the, into the breakout rooms. But here's the questions. The first one, how certain are you that you are significant in God's eyes? Okay, we're going to spend some time around the table discussing this. How certain are you that you are significant in God's eyes? Secondly, what do you believe is God's purpose and plan for your life? What do you believe? And some of us are in various stages of life as well. There's some that are quite young, and there's some of us a little bit older than them. And then what is your normal response to God when you know you have messed up? And then fourthly is pray for one another, especially if anyone is uncertain of their significance and or their purpose and plan of God for their life.